0: morning. It is very good to be with you this morning. Um, we are in the middle of a series. Uh, we're, uh, this is the fourth sermon uh, in the book of Galatians. Uh, we've had three sermons on the first chapter. We're uh, diving headlong into chapter number two this morning. Uh, by way of recap, uh, does anyone want to go ahead and just tell me what we've talked about for uh, the last month here uh, I'll go ahead and do it. Uh, first week, we, we talked about Paul as an apostle, right? Uh, this is how he begins. He's the sent one. He, is, he has been sent uh, by God uh, through a revelation from Jesus himself, and he, uh, he establishes uh, both his authority uh, and the fact that he has this mission. And his mission uh, is to, uh, uh, well, to share the gospel, and as I talked about the gospel the next week, we, we talked in terms of, um, uh, well, the gospel both in an Old Testament and, and New Testament context, and, and I said that it means victory in Jesus, right? This is what a, a, the gospel message uh, is, a, is good news, but it means good news, Jesus has won, right? He, has, he declares victory, uh, and namely, uh, over sin and over death, right? And then last week we talked some about Paul's biography. We we talked about the ways in which um, Paul's own spiritual journey uh, actually shaped who he uh, was and uh, and the message that he preaches. And I encouraged all of you to be on the lookout for God moments uh, in your life, and I hope that you've been doing that over the the last week. and uh, And my hope is that actually that continues. Uh, we we talked some about that this morning for those of you who were part of uh, the Exodus uh, Sunday School class. Uh, it was it was a very nice continuation of uh, what we were doing last week as well. And um, and and my hope is uh, that Paul's um, uh, spiritual uh, moments uh, of, of God revealing himself to Paul causes you to then ask yourself the same sort of question, when uh, and where and how do I experience God? Right? Uh, today we continue with the book of Galatians uh, into chapter 2. And before we do, uh, let's begin with a word of prayer. God, our Father... Jesus, the Son, and and Holy Spirit, we come before you, and we ask that you indwell this place and our hearts. We ask that you speak a word uh, through your word this morning. Lord, as we reflect on your scripture, as we reflect on Paul and his words, we trust that we will find you all over them. God, may this change us. May we be transformed into the likeness of Christ. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Uh, Before we actually jump into Galatians 2, I want to start with uh, a bit of a different place, and that is, uh, if you will give me enough attention, I want to tell you the history of the world. Uh, and, uh, And it goes like this. I was asked the question, or I was, sorry, I should backing up, uh, Clint Hunt, uh, who unfortunately is not here this morning, shout out to Clint though, uh, asked a wonderful question last Sunday in the Sunday school class with Acts, which is like, what are the top five events from uh, the Bible? Which uh, is, a, is a wonderful question, and I did my homework, and I've come with answers, uh, so Here's how this goes. In my mind, uh, and this is actually not mine, just so we're clear, uh, scholars have kind of traced these like, clear high points uh, through Scripture, uh, and I'm going to name uh, five of them, it just so happens, right? So it starts in the Garden of Eden. Right, and this is a, a critical moment where everything is right and then everything is wrong. Uh, and that's where we begin with a fallen world, right? And we begin with some, some cursing that happens in, in the Garden of Eden, if you recall. Uh, and then it actually continues for a while a- until we get to moment number two, okay? Moment number two is Genesis 12. Uh, say it with me, the person of. Abraham, great, someone said it, A+, plus. Uh, the rest of you, is okay, uh, we're getting there. And, uh, and in Genesis 12 uh, th- through like 10 plus chapters, we get the story of Abraham, and we get, more importantly yet, uh, the fact that God makes a covenant with Abraham, right? God makes a covenant with Abraham. And uh, remember, it actually happens in a few places. Uh, but uh, at one point, he's, he's looking in the uh, the night sky, and he sees uh, what we don't see, <laughs> uh, which is stars uh, in the night sky. Uh, and uh, and God says, you know, the, the this is your people. Like the, the I will uh, redeem uh, all. Uh, of humanity. And, and uh, chapter 12, in fact, just very quickly, uh, turn there with me, Genesis 12, uh, we get something very important uh, that happens here. Paul, by the way, is going to really pounce on this and make a lot of this um, in future weeks. Uh, but uh, in uh, Genesis chapter 12, by the way, if you have your Bibles, you're going to want to get them out today because I'm going to point you to a few places. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, Not to worry, there's one sitting right in front of you, it's the black book. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse." And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him. You'll notice uh, in the opening chapters of Genesis, I said, there's a whole lot of cursing that actually happens. And then what do we get? We get uh, chapter 12 opening up, and it's like the word "bless" gets used like a hundred times in just like three verses, right? And clearly God's doing something different. He's changing the tune, and he's coming in, and he's saying very clearly that through this one person, like God is, is beginning this salvation plan that is intended for not just a certain people group, but for the whole world, because he says very clearly in verse 3, I will bless those who bless you, him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth, all the families of the earth shall be blessed, and then the very next thing to happen is what? Abram went, right? And uh, the book of Genesis will point back to this a few times. Paul will point back to this a few times. Other New Testament writers will point back to this and say, this demonstrates that Abram was a man of faith, right? Faith being a critical word here. All right, so uh, this covenant that God makes with Abraham becomes this uh, pinnacle number two that we're going to have to come back to. Because at this point in history, I'll just go ahead and seed part of what Paul's going to try to claim here. He's going to say that there is no, there's no Jew, no Gentile at this point. There's just people, right? Which is true. And uh, with Abraham, there's the selection of a family, yes. But there's no, like, special people. There's just all people. And the, the, the covenant he will make with, with Abraham, uh, both here in 12, but, but very specifically, and, and we, in a few weeks we're going to uh, read this together again, in, in chapter 15, this covenant he makes with Abraham is a one-sided covenant. This becomes incredibly important. Because um, other covenants that get made uh, are two-sided covenants, right? which namely say that if Uh, the people of Israel don't do the thing, uh, then God's, well, there's going to be trouble, right? The covenant with Abraham is one-sided. God simply says, by my grace, by my acting in the world, I'm going to do this thing, right? I'm going to bless the people of the world. I'm going to redeem the world through you. There's nothing I need from you, Abraham, I just want you to know that's the covenant I'm making with you, right? All right, so that's number two. History of the world continues. And uh, a number of centuries later, uh, we get to uh, Exodus chapter 19. Exodus chapter 19, uh, if you want, you can turn there, but I won't read it, uh, is, uh, is right before the sermon, or sorry, uh, <laughs> the, uh, the Ten Commandments, uh, right? They're, they're up on the mountain, Mount Sinai. And uh, in 19... God again makes a covenant. All right? So uh, what we're seeing, the theme here, is this covenant-making God. Covenant, by the way, not a word we use a ton, um, but it's a promise. It's God coming to a people, and uh, often a person, uh, and saying, this is uh, what I intend to do, do you intend to uh, partner with me? And in the case of Exodus 19, God comes to Israel and they're sitting at the foot of Mount Sinai. Moses is the intermediary and and he's brokering the deal, the covenant between God and Israel. And God says, I want to be your God. Do you want to be my people? And Israel faithfully says, yes. Yes, we do. And then the next thing to happen is the Ten Commandments, right, and the law, and the giving of all the rules and all the regulations, right? And so God says, okay, this is a covenant with two sides to it. Like, I've got my side. I'm going to protect you. I'm going to pull you out of uh, tough situations, like I just pulled you out of Egypt, right? And then I need you to keep the law. It's that simple, right? And, and this is the, the uh, covenant that gets brokered in this moment. So that is pillar number three, uh, pivotal moment in uh, our, our scripture and in history. Pivotal moment number four comes to, again, a very specific person. Uh, if you want, you can turn there, but 2 Samuel 7 this time. Uh, 2 Samuel 7, if you know your Bible, is, uh, is David, right? And David gets plucked from obscurity. He's just a, a shepherd boy. He's the you know the seventh or eighth in a line of uh, boys, and he's a nobody. But God pulls him out uh, and he turns him into, into a king. And he and he establishes the kingdom of Israel at this point. It's not just Israel a people group, now it's Israel the kingdom. And he he sets David on the throne, and in 2 Samuel 7, he makes this covenant and he says, After you, I will always have a Davidic king sitting on the throne, right? This is the promise I'm making to you, David. All right, uh, that sets the stage. We've got four critical moments in history. You with me? Which gets us to number five. Number five is unique uh, because, one, we have the fulfillment of it-ish, and two, we have the promise of it. The Old Testament gives us the promise of it. The New Testament, Jesus, gives us the fulfillment of it, mostly. All right, so what am I talking about? The, the next moment, of course, is another covenant, And if we just skip ahead to the New Testament, we know what happens, right? We get Jesus in the upper room, and he makes a covenant, the new covenant, with his people. Are we all on the same page? And then he, the very next day, is crucified on a cross. Three days later, he's raised from the dead. And then the early church is left to ponder, what do we do with all that, right? What just happened? And the church begins to theologize and they begin to explain, well, my word, we have just entered into, this is what Paul's going to say, a new kind of age. We're in a new world order at this point. We are no longer under this this one way of being, namely the Old Covenant, what we call the Old Testament, what we call the law, the, uh, the, the Exodus 19 moment. We're now in... The New Testament, right? The New Covenant. And this New Covenant means, well, we have some new rules. All right, all of this is to say that the Old Testament has some things to say about expectations for what this is going to look like, okay? And Paul, Paul comes along, and Paul says... All right. Well, we have a Messiah. I've met him on the road to Damascus. We have uh, a, a, not just a crucifixion, we have a resurrection from the dead. So this means we are in the end times, he would say. If you, by the way, if someone ever asks me, uh, do you think the end times uh, are happening uh, sometime soon? my response is we are in the end times and we have been for 2,000 years, right? Because this is what our New Testament teaches us. With a resurrection, with Jesus being resurrected from the dead, there's this overlap of the end and the now. There's the now and the not yet happening together. And Paul is saying, all right, something new is happening. And with this new thing that is happening, we now need to reevaluate we need to re-understand what the old thing was and its place. Even Jesus Himself will talk about new wine and old wineskins. Do you remember this, right? And He's saying we can't we can't keep the old wineskins. We have to put new wine into new wineskins. All right. Well, let's hop into it with that uh, introduction of the history of the world. <laughs> uh, turn with me to Galatians. and we'll read from chapter 2. By the way, uh, I haven't said it yet. I should have said it from the beginning. Why the introduction to the history of the world (laughs) matters is because if it wasn't last week, it was the week before, I said that Paul keeps asking the question or, or, or is, is essentially saying, right, you don't understand what time it is. You don't understand. what." That's a critical question. What time is it? What time is it? We are not in a Exodus 19 time period. We are in a New Testament, New Covenant time period. And this changes then how we Act in this world. Maybe even how we read our whole uh, scripture, right? Let's go ahead and read uh, from Galatians chapter 2. Paul's continuing his story. Uh, Now he is fast-forwarding a little bit, and he says, uh, he says, then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me we can just pause and slow down for one second and note something that is very important for me. 14 years is a long time. Can we just all say that, right? 14 years is a lot longer than you might wish for all of these things to happen and all the things in your own life to happen. What were you doing 14 years ago, for example? I did the math uh, for my own life. Uh, So I came here in 2017. 14 years prior to that was 2003, math, and I was starting seminary. There's a lot of water that goes under the bridge from 2003 to 2017, right? A lot of water. And you better believe there's a lot of water that goes under Paul's bridge, in these 14 years that we know nothing about. Why? Why does it take so long? I I would just simply, uh, casually suggest to you that God takes a lot longer than any of us in this room uh, are comfortable with, especially in this day and age. We we live in an age of of speed and, and hyperactivity and God, yeah, he, he's going to just put the, the break, he's going to slow things down, right? He takes a thousand years, so we're all clear, from the time that David's sitting on the throne to the time that Jesus shows up. <laughs> That's how slow God moves, right? God is not in a rush. Fourteen years is actually pretty quick uh, in, in the scheme of things for the way God moves. But here Paul is... And he spends 14 years doing what we don't know for sure, but he's probably studying. He's probably seeking God. He's probably entering a period in his life where he's trying to figure out, okay, uh, I know all the scriptures that I was taught, and I know the way I was taught it, and I know how I understand the world to work, but I've just met this Jesus, and it has, reoriented, it has changed everything in my life, and now I need some time. I need some time to get my brain set. I need some time to get some answers so that when I go out and when I'm sent into this world that, that, that Christ has sent me into, I have, uh, I have my bearings underneath me, right? So it takes, it takes a while. Now it says here he, he goes with his friend Barnabas and his friend Titus. Barnabas is a great Jewish name, clearly a Jew, Right? Any, any name in your Bible that starts with Bar is going to be a Jewish name. Bar is simply son. Right? Uh, Titus sounds, you don't even have to ask, right? I mean, that sounds like a great Greek name. Uh, turns out he is. Both of these things are of deep significance in what follows here. So he takes Barnabas, he takes Titus, and in verse 2, It continues i went up because of a revelation now here again this is a man who's on a mission to uh, defend his gospel to defend the fact that he has the authority to say what he's saying and that these people in galatia should trust him because what he's doing isn't just like of his own volition He's saying, it was revealed to me again. God has spoken to me, and I'm moving at the whim of God, not at the whim of myself. And so he says, I went up because of a revelation to Jerusalem, and I set before them, and the them are Jerusalem leaders, okay, though privately before those who seemed influential. If that sounds like Paul is throwing shade on some of these leaders, it's because he is. <laughs> There's just no way around that. He, he says a few times, they, if, what they seem to be, right, it doesn't matter to me. You know, what, what he is doing again is establishing the fact that he has a level of authority that matches anything that they've got. And why? As we've said over the last few weeks, Well, because he has received his authority from God, straight from God's mouth, this revelation that is from Jesus. And so he says, I went up, I I, I went privately to these people, uh, to these leaders who are in Jerusalem, they seem influential, they are, you can can assume they're influential at least. Uh, uh, And he presents before them the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. So here he is, 14 years later, he's uh, been presenting a gospel, right? So he's been out and about among Gentiles, non-Jews, that is, right? And the gospel he's presenting, just so we're clear, is a gospel that says, you Gentiles do not need to keep the full weight of the law on you. Jesus has fulfilled the law, we are no longer in an Exodus 19 moment, we are in a New Testament moment, right? That's the time period. And so you no longer have to bear the burden and the weight of the law, namely, and he's going to name a few things. You don't have to worry about circumcision, you don't have to worry about dietary laws, you don't have to worry about staying kosher, you don't have to worry about keeping times and seasons and dates, and you don't have to worry about a lot of these things that come along with the Jewish legal system. And he goes to these people in Jerusalem, no doubt Jews, they're in Jerusalem, and he says, just so we're clear, everybody, this is the gospel I'm presenting And he says, I'm doing this in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. Now, it sounds a little bit like Paul is is asking their permission. Paul, (laughs) I assure you, is not asking their permission. He's making sure they're on the same page, right? He's making sure that what they're teaching and what he's teaching line up. And if it doesn't, he wants to get it fixed probably by fixing them, right? So he continues. But even Titus, here's his Greek friend Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Now this is critical in this moment, because not only has Paul shown up in Jerusalem with his Jewish friend Barnabas, more importantly yet, he has shown up with his Greek friend, full Greek, <laughs> uh, no sense of like Jewish proprietary uh, anything. And he has said, and this group of people has, has welcomed Titus. And they have said, yes, you are indeed a brother, right? You're one of us, despite the fact that you don't keep these Jewish laws. All right, we're Still on the same page. The story is still cooking. All right, let's keep going. Yet, because of false brothers secretly brought in, uh oh. So now they're in this secret meeting, and some extra secret people have come in who he's calling here false brothers. They slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery. All right. Freedom, slavery. I thought about preaching the sermon on freedom and slavery. Uh, However, he's going to use freedom and slavery about a thousand times in the next two chapters. So we're going to save that sermon for another day. But this is exactly what he's getting at. He's saying that the law, he connects... We're very clear. There's going to be some repetition over the coming weeks, which will be necessary if we're going to understand this dense book. If Jesus' gospel is that he has uh, uh, victory in Jesus, right? Victory over sin and death. The weird and radical and, and probably, for some people back then, problematic view that Paul takes is that he connects the law with those two things. He pulls the law and, and he, he, he says, death, sin, law. All of this is one bundle, okay? And he says, all of that has been dealt with on the cross. That is, that is now victory over those things. Amen. And Jesus has moved us into a different kind of living, I'll just go ahead and say it. It's a spirit kind of living. It's the Holy Spirit. It's the Acts 2 moment where the Spirit is poured out on the masses. And we now have the ability through the power of the Holy Spirit to discern the will of God and to do what is right. This is a very different way of living than uh, prior, right? All right. Continuing on in verse 5, then. Paul is adamant about these people, right? And he says, to them, those false brothers, we didn't yield in submission even for a moment. We didn't give them any kind of ground to stand on. And why? So that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And who's the you here? The you is the Galatians, first and foremost. It's also you, right? And the truth of the gospel is that, again, what time is it? It's not an Exodus 19 moment. It's, a, it's an Acts 2 moment. That's the moment we're in. And the truth of the gospel is that Christ's death and resurrection, it frees us from sin. It frees us from death. It even frees us from the law. And so he goes on. In verse six, and from those who seemed, here again, seemed to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Again, if if you're you're sensing that Paul's throwing a little shade on these leaders, it's because he is. Uh, There's just no way around this. Uh, They're not, he says, those who seem to be influential. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me, right? So he's saying, I walked in with this gospel because it was revealed to me that I need to go down to Jerusalem. So I went down there, and I brought my two friends with me, and we said, here's what we're teaching, and they added nothing to it, is what he says. They didn't correct me in some way. They didn't add on to it. He says, "What, what I put before them... He'll go on to say, they gave me the right hand of fellowship. They said, yes, brother, that's the right thing to say, right? And so in verse 7, on the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the, uh, the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked through me, for mine to the Gentiles— and when James, Cephas, Peter, and John, the three pillars of the church, when James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, uh, seem to be, uh, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Right? And so they give Paul and Barnabas, they say, Yes, brother, let's shake on this, what you're teaching, let's do that, okay? Let, keep preaching what you're preaching. Now, keep in mind, why is Paul saying any of this? Why is Paul saying any of this? Well, because this Galatian uh, set of churches that he's speaking to, they're straying from the message that he had preached to them. And they are being led astray by people uh, who are telling them that they actually do need to commit themselves to the full weight of the law. And Paul's trying to convince them in a few different ways. No, I received my gospel from Revelation. No, I took that Revelation and I brought it before the Jerusalem church. Peter himself, James, the brother of Jesus himself, gave me... The go-ahead. They gave me the green light to preach this gospel to you. And he wants to look at the Galatians and he wants to say, so what's the problem? What happened? A couple things. If we can kind of just pull back a second. I want to say that um, as we look at The Old Testament expectations of what the new covenant is going to look like. It gives us an idea of how Paul was probably preaching his message and what becomes important. So take your Bibles out again for me. This time, if you will, turn to the book of Jeremiah and find chapter 31. Jeremiah chapter thirty-one. I'll give you a second to get there. In this, Jeremiah is talking about a new covenant that is yet to come, and Jeremiah is setting some expectations of what this is going to look like, and he's going to seed some uh, some work that Paul's going to then bear the, uh, like, till the fruit from, I guess, uh, and give to these Galatian people and to to the New Testament church uh, at large. I could have pointed you, by the way, if you want to just kind of put this elsewhere, Ezekiel 36 has something very similar. But these two passages stand side by side in my mind as to what to expect in a new covenant sort of living. And so starting in verse 31, so Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. There it is, right? So just so we're all clear. Everybody's on, on they're, they're ready for a new covenant to come. And when Jesus, in that upper room, says, I'm making a new covenant with you, you better believe those disciples who have been trained in their Old Testament are on high alert. And they know, okay, he's he's talking about a Jeremiah uh, 31 moment here. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. Exodus 19, right? Not like that one. My covenant that they broke. The two-sided covenant. And Israel broke half of it, right? Though I was their husband, declares the Lord. There's so much imagery, right? The, 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 the husband-wife imagery that gets used, that Israel is the bride of Yahweh in this moment, and Yahweh has not kept its vows and has broken the heart of God. Verse 33, here it is: "For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel." after those days declares the lord i will put my law within them and i will write it on their hearts and i will be their god and they shall be my people and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying know the lord for for they shall all know me from the least to the greatest declares the lord for i will forgive the iniquity And I will remember their sin no more. He's saying that a day will come when the the words of the law themselves will be somewhat unnecessary. Because the law and the intent of it will be inscribed on the hearts of the believers. This is done through the act of the Holy Spirit. This is made evidently clear in a variety of places. And so there's this expectation that gets set up from our Old Testament that one day, a day is coming when we no longer need uh, to be enslaved by the power of the law to tell us what is right and what is wrong, because what's going to happen? Because the Holy Spirit is going to be poured out on us, and we are going to know What is right and wrong because it's inscribed on our very hearts. This is the kind of life that Paul has envisioned here. It's why later on in Galatians 5, he's gonna say there's works of the flesh and they look like this, and then there's the fruit of the Spirit, right? And the Spirit filled life looks this way. And he says, if you live this way, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, if that's how you're living and that's who you are, it's very likely the Spirit is living within you and is active, right? All right. So uh, last thing I want to leave with you this is the so what question. Why does any of this matter, Right? Why is it important to study and and to know and and to appreciate this this first century context that Paul is in? What does it mean to us today, right? What do we do with it? There's actually a lot of answers to this. It's possible you don't even need me to get you to this point. But in case you do, here's a few things. I think what this does for us, it's... It's to say that victory in Jesus, the gospel, is enough without the additives that we so long to put on top of it, right? So for us, the additives are not what they were for the Galatians. The Galatians are trying to add this law on top of it. I don't see anyone running around here saying we should do all of the works of the law. Like That doesn't seem to be our problem. But we are probably trying to add some things on top of victory in Jesus. Maybe it's like a political party that you think is like necessary to be part of in order to be a Christian. It doesn't work that way. Maybe you think it's, it's um, the, the right doctrine. <laughs> as important as doctrine is, as important as right thinking is, that too isn't part of the victory in Jesus, right? Maybe it's like being part of the right denomination. Maybe, like, the Baptists got it right, and uh, the Methodists down the street, Seidenstricker, Stricker, sorry, you know, <laughs> don't tell them I said, no, that's actually not true, right? I would be glad to partner with Sidenstricker United Methodist as Methodists, because uh, there, the denominational uh, differences do not negate what it means to be victorious in Jesus, right? The center of the gospel is the center of the gospel. But it's also possible, and this is the one that I think plagues a lot of us. I know it gets me sometimes. It's not so much what I'm putting on to other people that makes the gospel uh, the, the errant gospel. It's what I'm doing to myself. It's the messages I bring in to my own life. It's me saying, oh, I'm not enough for God. If, if I, could, if I could try a little harder... If, if I just work, you know, and I, and I do all the right things, then, then you know what, God's going to shine his mercy and his blessing upon me. And then, then it's going to be good, right? And, and if, I, uh, if I do, uh, if I say the right things in a way that captures the attention of my congregation and, and I get the applause afterward and I get the pats on the back and, and people say, great sermon today, uh, then, yeah, then, God will love me enough, right? Or if I make people laugh, or if I do a good job at work, or uh, if I make my mom proud, or whatever it is, right? Then God will love you. That um, That is incredibly destructive in understanding the God of the universe. Because what we find in Scripture... What we find in the New Testament, what we find in this new covenant, is that Christ, by his own will, has come and died on your behalf. Why? Because he loved you while you were yet a sinner. It had nothing to do with you, your goodness. Your funniness, your, uh, your cleverness, your ability to, to, to play basketball. I, I don't know what it is for you, right? That, that's not what wins God's affection. And by the way, it shouldn't win our affection for one another either. We're often swayed by those things. But our love as Christians... Should be unconditional, just like the Father's love is unconditional. This is a very different, if I need to say it, a very different way of being. Unconditional love is a very different way of being than what we find in the Exodus 19 world, a world that requires striving and keeping the lists. And making sure that I'm doing all the right things. My hope this week is that we all lean into what it means to be loved by God unconditionally. While you were yet at your worst, God loved you and drew near to you, reached out to you, died for you, that you might know the way into life. Life in the full here and now, and life eternal. Let's pray together. God, you are the God of the universe who has stood before time outside of time, beyond time. You have created all that we've ever seen, all that we've ever known, all that we've ever heard. Lord, you have spoken existence. You have spoken all of this into being. And yet, you're the personal God who sees his children languishing on this earth and reaches out Desires to love us. Your grace is so abundant. It is lavished upon us. And God, you are waiting, crying out to us, saying through the person of Jesus Christ that, that you love us. And you love us so much you're willing to die for us. And that you desire to pour out your spirit upon us. And God, in this place, of unconditional love, I pray that our response is yes, Lord. We love you too. We desire to serve you. We desire to partner with you. Send us to. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We have one final song to sing. Uh, it is a hymn. If you'll stand with me, grace greater than our sin, hymn number 329 if you want to, or we'll have the words up here. into the world today. Uh, I pray that uh, we all uh, live acts two kinds of uh, lives together. Lives that are infused by the Holy Spirit uh, dwelling deep within us, brimming out of us, transforming us into the likeness of Christ himself. That we might receive God's grace and then lavish it upon the world that is around us. Go in that kind of spirit and in the peace of God. Mm-hmm. <clears throat>